0: Well, pray with me as we open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let us pray. Daniel, can you move that for me? Thank you. Blessed and only, sovereign Christ, Messiah, Our Lord, we love thee, and we worship thee as our God. We rejoice in thy blessed gospel, which is all our hope and assurance of life eternal beyond the veil of death. Glorious, joyful peace resonates, yes, dances in thy land, O Emmanuel. And thank you for breathing out this blessed letter through thy servant Paul to the new young believers in ancient Colossae. Incredible is this portrayal of thee, most supreme ruler, Lord of the cosmos. All glory and praise be thine. Blessed Father, by thy all-wise mind, engage our feeble minds with thy truth. As the divine potter, reshape our wills into conformity with thy ever-merciful will. Soften our hard hearts, our wills, with the water of thy grace sprinkled on us by thy Spirit. And then delight us with the aroma, the gentle but joyful singing and laughter coming over the water to us from Emmanuel's sweet land. Delight us with the beauty of mercy and truth kissing Righteousness and peace dancing, stirring our affections with love for Thee, our beloved, eternally beloved Jesus. Amen. Stand with me please in spirit or physicality and open to Colossians chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. Colossians 2, 1 through 7. The Apostle Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding in a true, rich knowledge of God's mystery, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus as Lord, So walk in Him, having been firmly rooted, being built up in Him, and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, overflowing with gratitude. Amen. The Word of God. You may be seated. Before I enter in, next Lord's Day, uh, Tammy and I, and Carrie, Aaron, and the girls won't be with you. We will, next Sunday afternoon, be going to a Masterworks concert in which Lily sings. Shane Rosenthal, pastor, T.E., from White Horse Inn, some of you know about that, will be coming to preach the Word of God. So I pray a rich blessing upon you in that. Context review. Glorious has this epistle become to me through this new preaching series that I've entered into For increasingly glorious is the blessed Christ to me in my life personal, in my pastoring shepherding, and in my preaching teaching. Indeed, I would not exchange my Lord Jesus for all the comfort out of heaven. I would not exchange my Lord Jesus for all the comfort out of heaven. That thought was spoken centuries ago, but I concur. It rather shapes a clear understanding of what you're in it for, doesn't it? Yeah. Hmm. Well, I pray that becomes true of you. This epistle describes a, a new, young church made up of young in the faith, men and women, boys and girls. And they lived in what was then known as the Lycos River Valley. They were at the crossroad of a major north-south-east-west roads. Five days' walk from Ephesus, an important seaport city on the western coast of modern-day Turkey. And accordingly, the flow of goods, people, and ideas flowed regularly into Colossae. And this yielded a homogenization of religious thought, which, while very popular, was utterly false. Their social media yielded the same disaster ours does today through the screen. And the church was being affected infected by mystical polytheism, an early form nascent form of full-blown Gnosticism and affected, infected by Torah keepers, law keepers, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul, after praying for them, dives into one of the highest, most exalted Christological passages of the New Testament. Colossians is about Christ. The twin sister letter, Ephesians, is about Christ's church. But in the development of who Christ is, we have learned that Christ is the the very image of the invisible God. He was and is the prototype of man, as the man, as the second Adam, God's intended imaginal day in the flesh, as God of very God. Adam the first was never the full intention of God. Paul makes that clear in Romans 5.14. Adam the first was a mere type of the man from heaven, 1 Corinthians 15. The second Adam, our sweet Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ, is what the invisible God looks like in the flesh. Christ is what the invisible God behaves like in the flesh. Christ is what the invisible God talks like in the flesh. He who has seen me, Philip, has seen the Father. Wow. Wow glorious gift the Gospels are to us. And so as such, Christ is supreme ruler, supreme potentate over the cosmos, over the entire created realm, visible and invisible. For all creation was made through Christ, by Christ, for Christ. He is Christ, supreme over all. And it is from that context that Christ is set forward as supreme ruler, preeminent over the one, and he is the one head of the body, the church. And then wondrously, Through Christ, the Father has reconciled all creation to himself. Angels and demons bow before Christ, the God-man. Saved mankind, a damned and damned for unbelief mankind, bow before Christ, the God-man. Demons did so continuously, did they not, in the Gospels? All shall one day bow down before Christ, supreme ruler and head of the body, the church, and, yes, the created realm. And then Paul shifts briefly. This is chapter 1 verse 23 shifts briefly from the indicative to the imperative saying if you continue in the faith hmm. i said last week that's not a very presbyterian sounding verse if because it represents a statement in Holy Scripture, not out of the indicative of what God in Christ has done for us, but it represents a statement. Now, in the imperative, the commands, the therefores, if God has done this in Christ, therefore you. So the imperative is as prominent as, as the indicative. The indicative is our ticket to heaven. The imperative is getting us ready to go to heaven. Most of us don't look very ready. Most of us need a shower. Most of us need a major personality, character, sanctification. Don't look at your neighbor. Romans 3.31, Romans 3.31 is a classic passage which establishes the reality of the law in the life of the Christian. Paul comes to this incredible diatribe against salvation through law, declaring, no man shall be justified through works of law. Romans 3.20. But then he says in Romans 3.31, because the argument can come, well, throw the law out. Paul asked in 3.31, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. Megnota is the Greek King James trying to capture the heart of Paul's almost instinctive recoil. But God forbid... On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, I'm not going to go into Romans, but don't you understand who your Savior is? And don't you understand what your Savior's done? He kept the law perfectly, perfectly, he kept the law perfectly his father's will, and that righteousness of keeping the law perfectly is wrapped around us. And then we say, well, I don't have to be guided by the law. Philippians two twelve Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But I'm of the elect. Why is this in here? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I know you know the rest of it. That's the indicative part. This time the imperative is put up front. Ephesians 2, 8-10. We have been, the context is 8-10, I'm just quoting verse 10. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is what's behind grace. This is what's behind gifted faith created in Christ Jesus for good works. And Paul will say in Romans 6, What shall we say then to all these wondrous things that God has done for us? Romans 1 through 5. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it it never be? God forbid! How shall we who died to sin still live in it? A very serious, very serious gospel question. Brothers and sisters, there is an antinomianism out there which proclaims such a freedom in God's election that neither repentance nor sanctification are needed. There is an antinomianism, the counterpart to legalism, out there which proclaims such a freedom in God's election that neither repentance nor sanctification are needed. If you are of the elect, you are good to go without obedience. This is the counterpart of legalism, and both receive the apostolic anathema, God forbid. He whom God justifies, he also sanctifies. Good trees bear, can you say it with me, good fruit. Jesus used poetic, paintbrush-type language. A good tree bears good fruit. The Creeds say it more in prose. He whom God justifies, he also sanctifies. Then, as we saw last week, Paul turned to the sufferings he was enduring for the sake of the church, and in his words, filling up Christ's afflictions. Significant the thought that was voiced last week, but there are sufferings ordained, afflictions ordained for Christ's body, the church, which are shared by Christ, for we are his body, he will ask Saul Tarsus, Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Therefore, Christ has suffered once in his own person, so he suffers daily in his members, and in this way there are filled up those sufferings which the Father has appointed for his body by his decree. But sweet Jesus always has on his shoulder the heaviest end of the cross because even his crosses are filled with graces. Well, Paul then reaches a crescendo of thought speaking of the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you the hope of glory, and that was verse 27 of chapter 1. Explanation, verse 1, chapter 2. Observe how this verse follows immediately the thought at the close of chapter 1. Verse 29, chapter 1, Paul says, He is laboring, striving according to Christ's power, which is mightily working within him. And the word labor means to the point of exhaustion. Labor here, to the point of exhaustion. Ministry is often like that That's the session. Ministry is never convenient. <laughs> I can't recall a convenient season of ministry. The word striving here, though, is the verb form of chapter 2, verse 1's noun struggle, and the Greek verb at the close of chapter 1 sounds like this, agonizomai. Yeah, you're headed there. And the noun in verse 1 sounds agon. We get our word agony from it. The verb agonizing at the close of one. The noun, I want you to know how great a agony I have on your behalf, praying for you. Paul declares his affection and agonized prayers for the church which was based on the stewardship which had been given him from his Lord. It is, Calvin says, it is an evidence of no ordinary affection that he was concerned about them in the midst of death. That is, when he was in danger of his life. He's imprisoned in Rome. He eventually will be beheaded in Rome. And who's he thinking about? His people. The church. Paul loved the church because he loved Christ. He knew well the truth expressed in 1 John 4. This commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. It was his love for Christ and his church that enabled Paul to endure physical suffering he went through, Second Corinthians 11. It also allowed him to bear the daily pressure of concern for all the churches, Second Corinthians 11. And because of that love, he could endure defections, false teachers, personal abuse, Indeed, Second Timothy 2, he could endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with the eternal glory. Hmm. Verse 2, he says he's praying that their hearts may be encouraged. Interestingly, Here is a form of the word paraclete, do you recognize it? That's John 14. I will send you another helper, another comforter, another paraclete. Some translations give it the transliteration meaning. Its basic meaning is to exhort, comfort, encourage. But Paul prays that their hearts be encouraged through a knitting together in love. He prays that these young Christians be firmly bound together in agape love. And observe that this is not a structural arrangement of committees. Committees are necessary, read Acts 6, but this is not what Paul is describing. Paul describes here the organic nature by which churches and believers grow together relationally in love. The word <laughs> even carries the idea of arm in arm striding forward together. Hmm. I have seen one once. Country line dancing. Some of you have seen that. Never done it. Couldn't do it. But that's the image. Arm in arm striding forward, together, knit together. Now, over against those who tried to intellectualize the Christian faith, speaking of knowledge as if it were an end in itself, Paul emphasizes that revelation of God cannot be properly known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within the community. Do you understand that? A Christian who's behaving badly but still wants to look like a Christian will just sink him or herself into Scripture, the creeds, the confessions, thereby seemingly justifying himself. I'm really not all that bad. Look at me. Look at all I know. Look at all I'm reading. Paul's emphasis is that revelation of God cannot be properly known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within the community. So if you're not really good with your neighbor, start with your spouse, then move out further. If you're not in a good way with your neighbor, who are you kidding? That you think that you're good with God? Read First John. It can't be. If you can't love your neighbor, you can't love God. You see, the one should be easier. That's 1 John. Of course you're going to be good with your neighbor. Because you realize when you look at your neighbor, who are you really looking at? Jesus. Just as when they look at you, they are looking at Jesus. Let us live our lives that way. I can always tell when the words are sinking in. It gets real quiet. And that's good. And that's good because they're applied to me first. I'm no fool. Sit here and talk about something that I'm not trying to practice. (laughs) Well, the Corinthian church, which (laughs) had a real special need to learn this lesson, was reminded that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge is focused on self. (laughs) Love is focused on neighbor. It is later made clear in Ephesians 3 that only as Christians are rooted and grounded in love can they comprehend with all the saints the fullness of the divine revelation. And this revelation is personal. Christ Himself is the mystery of God. So, hearts encouraged, knit together in agape love, to the wealth of full assurance, conviction of understanding, a putting together in the mind facts joined in a holistic understanding and an epicenter-type knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. Pastoral Reflection. Do I know Christ? Or do I just know facts about him? The Spirit of God, I'm sure, is making it real clear to you, not to me. I don't want to know. I'm asking the question of me first Do I know Christ? Or do I just know facts about Him? Do you think about Him? Do you dwell on Him? Do you picture him walking with the saints in Emmanuel's land, laughing, talking, answering their questions? Do you long to hear his voice, to see his face, to watch the delight in his eye welcoming one of his brothers or sisters home to Emmanuel's land? the joy that must radiate from his face and all those gathered. God's mystery is Christ, the man, the God-man, Christ Jesus himself, the man who physically stands in Emmanuel's land which is his land surrounded by a daily growing throng of his brethren gifted him by the Father above. verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3 is the Christological high point of the letter. It's incredible. Verse 3, speaking of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is the one in whom is found all one needs to understand spiritual reality and to lead a life pleasing to and glorifying to God. Now, interestingly here, the word for treasure, the word for treasure is thesaurus. I think many of you know that word in the English. Thesaurus, a storehouse of words similar in meaning. That's what thesaurus is. Christ is hidden in him, is a thesaurus, storehouse of precious things, of wisdom and knowledge. And you don't get that just by knowing facts about him. It comes from having an epigenosis relationship with him. Which means you're serious about turning from your sin. And you're not going to hold on to something that will make your prayers not be hindered. Or will limit your ability with peace of conscience to come before the blessed face of Jesus. Wisdom refers to practical knowledge, the skill applying true knowledge to life, the ability to understand reality as God sees it, and then act on that understanding. Knowledge, on the other hand, has a more intellectual focus. I've often thought and used this illustration. It speaks to me. I love books. Knowledge is like someone's personal library. Filled with books, they typically are arranged by categories, by issues and needs. Wisdom, though, And and knowledge is basically knowing what's in each of those books because you've read them. Wisdom, though, is having somebody walk in with an issue in life. And your mind goes immediately to the top eight books around the room that speak to this issue, practically. That's wisdom. Having the books, great. Do you know what's in them? More important, can you wisely use the knowledge you have of Christ to bless your neighbor? Verses 4 through 5. Some of us need to learn to read in a different way. Verses 4 through 5. Paul's theology and high Christology of the first verse in chapter 1 through the third verse in chapter 2 has a direct Practical purpose, verses 4 and 5, to keep believers from being deceived by persuasive arguments. To keep believers from being deceived by persuasive arguments. Be careful what you listen to. Be careful what you eat. One of my chapel officers was a very woodsy um, man, loved hunting, avid, avid hunter and fisherman. And in discussions with him, he told me that he had a map from the state of Illinois which identified every river, every creek, every pond, every lake according to toxic chemicals in the water so that he knew how many fish he could catch out of each and eat it safely. Be careful what you eat. Be careful what you read. Be careful who you're listening to. The antidote Per Paul in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the antidote for such false teaching is the epigenosis, real, rich knowledge of Christ himself, his absolute supremacy and exclusivity in his very person. Now, Paul rejoices in their good order and discipline. The Greek there is taxes, we get our word taxonomy from it, a structured listing of things and physical. Christians have or to have a good structure, existence and stability, firmness of their faith, their trust into Christ. Christians are believers who are in a faith trust pursuit of relational movement toward Jesus. Their faith is dynamic, not static. Dead in the water. It's moving. Our catechisms teach us about Jesus. That does not mean we know Jesus dynamically. Nor does it mean that Jesus knows me. Verses 6 through 7. Big shift. While the epistle up through 2 5 has stretched us considerably, both in length and complexity, chapter 1, verse 3 through 2 5, essentially, listen carefully, is the indicative beginning of this epistle. Now in 2 6, Through the end of the book, we have the imperative, the therefore of the epistle. And the Spirit of God very adroitly here uses the transitional, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. And this Christological focus summarizes the opening part of the letter. So, Paul has spotlighted the person of Christ, ruler of both the old creation and the new. He is the substance of God's mystery, God's plan for history, the repository of all wisdom and knowledge and he has reminded the Colossians that they have responded to the gospel about the Lord of the universe, yielding their lives and loyalty to him. But here in verse 6, look at chapter 2, verse 6. Here in verse 6, is the focus of the entire letter. Here's why he wrote. Here is the response the Spirit through Paul now calls his readers to make. So walk in him. This imperative at the end of verse 6 is the first imperative in the letter, and the first in a series of some 28 imperatives or commands dominating 2-6 through 4-6. Count them sometime. I think there's 28 do this therefore, do this therefore, live your life this way therefore, but based on the indicative. Indeed, Colossians is perhaps the clearest example of the indicative imperative grammar of the gospel. So walk in Christ. So walk in Christ. So Paul, by the Spirit, I'm wrapping up. So Paul, by the Spirit, has identified five goals for the Christians. Verse 2, that their hearts be encouraged. I pray yours is. Verse 2 again, that they be organically knit together in love. We are being knit. Praise God for his initiative through the women's ministry in this. But it has infected more the church beyond just the women. Verse 2 again, that they gain a full assurance of understanding in an epicenter type knowledge of Christ himself. And verse 6, that they walk in Christ Jesus just as they receive him and the nature of this incredible gift the Father has given to us in Christ. It behooves us to know what his expectations are. We did not adopt Carrie at age 10 bring her in and say, now you're adopted, you're good to go, you don't have to change any of your behaviors. Ha! Huh? Asked Carrie. Now she's a beautiful daughter by adoption and mother of two precious girls and married to a wonderful man who's now touched by Jesus majorly doctrine, because of the intense, indicative to imperative nature of Colossians, and because of the twin dangers of legalism on the one hand, antinomianism on the other, anti-law, Namas anti-law. The law has no impact or implication for the Christian at all. That's antinomianism. And because Presbyterians, if they err, will tend to err in the direction of antinomianism, rather than legalism. Why? Because Reformed faith understands the indicative, understands what God has done for us in Christ. But sometimes, some churches never move into the therefore, the imperatives which flow out of the indignities. Now, because of those three things, I have been inter- in interaction with Legionnaire, R.C. Sproul. And this is R.C. Sproul they sent in response to a chat box. I can do chat boxes now. A chat box where I ask a question. And this is Sproul on the hyper-grace teaching of antinomianism. I quote, If we're talking about hyper-grace in terms of grace covering everything, there are those in that movement who are basically antinomianism. Antinomian. That is... They believe that once we experience grace we are no longer under the law in any sense, even in the instructive sense as the rule of life. That's poor. reformed thought teaches clearly we are not saved by law. We are not under the condemnation of the law. But reformed thought teaches clearly that the application of the law to the life of the believer is as the rule of life. And specific is the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Back to Spall. A person is saved by grace, not by law, and we understand that. Nevertheless, there is the old question that Paul writes, Shall we continue in sin, that grace may abound? And his answer is, God forbid, Romans 6, 1, 2. Some people want to make it sound like once you have experienced grace, then basically you can live however you want. And he quotes an old quote, I've heard Sinclair quote, free from the law, blessed condition, I can sin all I want and still have remission. Not, but that's out there. This is one This is one of the greatest threats to the contemporary evangelical community right now, this resurgence of the radical character of antinomianism and libertinism. Part of it is related to that seriously deficient doctrine of the carnal Christian that has been so widespread, which says that a person can actually be a Christian and still not have had their constitutive nature changed by the Holy Spirit, they are still in a state of total carnality, period. That is just an impossibility end quote R.C. Sproul. So both legalism and antinomianism are antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ receiving the apostolic anathema, the application. The full riches of the gospel is the person of Christ himself, Jesus himself. Do I love Jesus? Do I know Jesus personally? Am I eager to see my Savior, in his land, Emmanuel's land. I would not exchange my Lord Jesus for all the comfort out of heaven. I don't think I'm there, but I'm getting there. There was a period of my life when I wouldn't have understood that at all. Because heaven's all about me. What I want. Is it really? It's all about Jesus, people. It's all about Jesus. And there is your greatest joy, glory, comfort through anything. Jesus. So how is it with you part of the Holy Spirit's five goals for this church? The Spirit of God wants our hearts to be encouraged. Verse 2. Spirit of God wants his church to be organically knit together in love. Verse 2. What are you doing? reaching out relationally with the goal of organically knitting part of this body together in love. Verse 2, The Holy Spirit wants this church to gain a full assurance of understanding in an epigenosis knowledge, epicenter type knowledge of Christ Himself. In verse 6, the Spirit of God wants this church to walk in Christ just as you have received Him. There's always a therefore behind what Hath God done in Christ. There's always a therefore. And finally, the Holy Spirit wants this church to be literally overflowing with gratitude because you love the Savior, blessed, sweet Jesus. Let me pray. Oh, Father, so much have you packed in this wee epistle. But wondrously you have displayed for us the Christ, supreme ruler of the cosmos, visible, invisible, head, preeminent head over the church. We bow before you. We bow before him, saying, My Lord and my God, come to us. Let us sense your sweet, sweet presence. In Christ's name, amen.